Thanks to you at home for joining me this hour. So one of the recurring characters in Donald Trump's classified documents indictment, the superseding indictment, that is, is somebody named Trump employee number two. That employee gave Trump this photo showing the number of boxes in the Mar-a-Lago storage room in November of 2021. There were a lot of boxes. Then the next month, in December of 2021, Trump's valet, Walt Nauda, texted this photo to that same Trump employee number two. The photo showed documents, including a document clearly marked secret, spilled all over the floor at Mar-a-Lago. Mr. Nauta and employee number two coordinated for months and personally moved several of Trump's boxes around the property. Now, while NBC News has not independently confirmed this, the New York Times and the Washington Post and ABC News have all identified Trump employee number two as his former executive assistant, a woman named Molly Michael. And ABC News reports that when Trump heard that the FBI wanted to talk to Ms. Michael last year, Trump didn't overtly tell Molly Michael to lie. It wasn't as straightforward as that. Instead, Trump reportedly told his assistant, Molly Michael, who he knew, knew a ton about these boxes, he reportedly told her, you don't know anything about the boxes. You don't know anything about those boxes. That kind of mafia-like doublespeak is really helpful as we try to begin to understand the former president's defense here. Just last week, Trump said this to my colleague, Kristen Welker. I want to ask you about the case related to Mar-a-Lago. A new charge suggests you asked a staffer to delete security camera footage so it wouldn't get into the hands of investigators. Did it's you do false. that? It's, it's false. false. But let me tell you what Did you testify to that under sure. oath? I'm going to, I'll testify. You testify to that under oath? It's a fake okay. charge. Now, testifying under oath about whether or not he asked his staff to delete security footage does not sound like a great idea for Mr. Donald Trump. I mean, we know from the criminal indictment that on June 22nd, 2022, the Justice Department told Trump's lawyers that they were drafting a subpoena for security camera footage from Mar-a-Lago. And the next day, Trump had a 24-minute phone call with Mar-a-Lago's property manager, a gentleman named Carlos de Oliveira. A few days after that, de Oliveira pulled Mar-a-Lago's IT director into a closet and said, again, according to the indictment, the boss wanted the security camera server deleted. But if Donald Trump did have to testify about that, about whether he asked a member of his staff to delete security camera footage, what if his literal answer to that question is no? What if his instruction was more like, it would be a real shame if something were to happen to that security camera footage? I mean, it's... It's not a direct order to delete the footage, but the meaning is pretty clear. And that is the way, it seems, Trump operates. Say it, but don't actually say it. Remember Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran? After Trump got a federal subpoena demanding that Corcoran, that he, Trump, return all of the classified documents in his possession, Evan Corcoran noted that in a meeting about the subpoena, Trump asked him, well, what happens if we what happens if we just don't respond at all or don't play ball with them? And before Evan Corcoran was set to return a folder of classified documents to the FBI, Trump didn't even use words. Evan Corcoran noted at the time that Trump made a funny motion as though, well, OK, why don't you take them with you to your hotel room? And if there's anything really bad in there, like, you know, pluck it out. And that was the motion he made. He didn't say that. <clears throat> 
Nothing direct, just hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson testified <clears throat> to the House January 6th committee that the lawyer Trump's team had set her up with instructed her, the less you remember, the better. Got that? The less you remember, the better. In 2019, Trump's former attorney <clears throat> and fixer Michael Cohen offered this explanation of Trump's penchant for thinly veiled suggestions. He doesn't give you questions. He doesn't give you orders. He speaks in a code. And I understand the code because I've been around him for a decade. You don't know anything about the boxes. The less you remember, the better. There is a lot of plausible deniability there, but there is also very clearly a pattern. Joining me now, Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and a former senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, and George Conway, lawyer and columnist. Thank you both for being here as I lose my voice steadily throughout the hour. Um, I'll keep the... Don't worry, we'll talk a lot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was our hope. Um, <laughs> let me first start with you, George. It is not... It is not subtle what Trump's strategy here is, right? It's literally, there's a reason the Godfather imagery is around us. This is like out of a Francis Ford Coppola movie. Um, can it work? No, not in this case, because there's just too much of it. If you had just one of these incidents, one in circumstance where, where he's saying, geez, what if we didn't have these documents to Corcoran? Maybe alone that might, you know, that you could, it wouldn't be enough but you've got him moving the documents. You've got the, the direction about destroying the videotape footage. You've got now you've got this um, statement that he made to Molly Michaels, which was is pretty close to basically saying, <laughs> you, don't she, you, don't know, you don't know anything about this when he knows damn well that she knew that there were more than 15 doc boxes that were turned that, that and the ones that were turned over to the government. You've got that. You've got the plucking cork and saying, what if you just, you know, is there anything bad in there? You could just. Yeah. You know, he's got that. His lawyer felt the compelled to write all of that down. And then there's the telling, the telling, uh, to hiding, he was hiding the documents from Corcoran so that Corcoran wouldn't tell the government. Yes. He's, he just doesn't stop. And, and that's why all of this evidence, it's just, it all fits together. And, and, you know, they, when we see, we see count 33 of the indictment and the Mar-a-Lago indictment, which is the conspiracy to obstruct, they listed these things, A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and they didn't, put in the mall. They've got so much. Yeah. He's dead to rights in all this. <laughs> George Conway has an opinion on this, and I believe dead to rights is the phrase he just used. Right. It is a we fair- We both use that phrase, to be honest. Okay. It's very independently. Andrew, it is, seems like a fairly rudimentary strategy, right? I'm not going to say the words, I'm going to wink, wink, and nudge, nudge my way through what could be criminal behavior. How do prosecutors go about proving that, you know, what Trump's actual intent was? Um, so this is what juries are for. Um, right. This is why you basically say to a jury to use your common sense. Um, but there's too many instances. This goes back to would someone rid me of this meddlesome priest. Let's just remember, we're talking about somebody who is the leader of the free world. This is basically time when you say to a jury, let's just grow up um, and look at this like an adult. What would you what would a president who wants to comply with the law be saying? They would be saying, have we turned everything over? Have we found it? So you model what the right behavior is, and then you go through all of the things that he did. I have to say here, I don't think it's plausible deniability. I don't. I think it's implausible deniability. Yeah. And let's just remember, it's not going to be denied because Donald Trump, no matter how many times he says now that he's willing to testify to it, 
I am 100% positive that's not happening for the same reason that I'm old enough to know that he said, don't worry, I'm going to come in and talk to you during the Mueller investigation. Yeah, you're old How enough did to that remember, go? yes. Yeah, that didn't happen. Um, and that, by the way, it was the right move for, for him. It would have been awful for him to come in and testify um, for us in the same way that it would be really a death knell if he went and testified in any of these cases. Andrew, why do you think we are getting this reporting largely from ABC News about Molly Michael? Why why are details of her testimony leaking? Is this Molly Michael worried about her own legal peril? You know, I, I doubt that. Um, I, I assume that that has been resolved, that she has counsel and that has been worked out. If she is somebody who is um, is employee two in the indictment, then that's not something that the government has left dangling. That means that they are fairly confident that she would be a witness. Um, why it is leaking now, the one thing I will say is, obviously, if it comes from the government, it is correct to say it's a leak. If it comes from uh, Molly Michael or some lawyer who knows it, that's not a leak. I mean, mm -hmm. They're entitled to speak to whoever they want to speak to. Um, they are giving that information, but there's no law, there's no ethics rules that would prevent that. Um, why it's happening now, though, I don't know. It could be um, a whole variety of reasons, but it is happening. Um, and it seems it seems entirely consistent with, as George said, all of the other information in the charge. And, and what keeps happening with each one of these nuggets of information that we get, Trump is Trump continues to do press. He continues to talk about it and he continues to dig a hole for himself Absolutely. in terms of his own defense. Right. Absolutely. It's going to be just a few minutes before someone asks him about what he said to and Molly that's Michael. Why he's never, ever going to he, he will be destroyed on the stand in about 30 seconds by any decent cross examiner on almost any subject, because you just you cannot pull the stuff that you can pull it at a town hall or even in a, in a one on one interview with a good interviewer. Um, you, you just can't pull that. So you can't you can't just fulminate on some other subject. You actually have to answer questions and get pinned down. Is everybody every, is every all these people, every single one of them, are they all lying. This one, that one, that one, that one. And you could draw him out. I mean, that's just one different one of many techniques you could use. It's like, OK, so then the prosecutor, after asking those questions, say, so you heard it from the man himself. Everybody is lying except for him. Does that make any sense to you? George is ready for the ready for cross. <laughs> right. I just saw I saw yes. it. It was like right. Harry yes. Mason. Right. Uh, I, what, I, what is also remarkable, and I pose this to both of you guys, is the way in which Trump has left, you know, the, the government hasn't left things hanging, but Trump has left things hanging with some of the people who are going to be critical to his own defense. I have to ask about Rudy Giuliani, who is being sued by his former lawyer, Bob Costello, for $1.4 million. His New York apartment is up for sale for $6.5 million. He's been ordered to pay $133,000 in court order legal fees for the women he, well, it supposedly, allegedly, reportedly defamed Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. I mean, he's been disbarred. He can't actually work. This person is someone, if you're Trump, you would want to take care of, and yet he's hanging him out there to dry. And let me just add to that, in case that's not a big enough litany. Um, uh, and he's, he's being, yes, he's, <laughs> he is a, under criminal indictment. He is awaiting a civil trial in the Dominion case, um, like just like Fox. And um, it's not an allegation with respect to um, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. Beryl Howell has found liability, um, deservedly, um, and he is awaiting an upcoming imminent trial on damages. Yes, um, civil and, damages. And that is, that is one where it is hard to see how a jury wouldn't take that 
unbelievably seriously, given what they went through. And that sort of ties in with Trump being a mob boss, because, you know, they have borne the brunt of that kind of defamation from the former president. But but doesn't the mob boss take the lesson that when your underling is under the, you know, when the screws are tightening, you come to the you keep your. You keep your capos close to yeah. the vest, well, don't he's you? Raising, he's trying to raise money for him. Yeah. So he raised a million dollars for a guy who is in the hole to the tune of multiple millions yes. of dollars with more legal expenses to come as an unindicted co-conspirator in right. the federal case and a co-defendant in the Georgia well, case. Here's the trick about being a mom. Well, first of all, there are two things. One now, is, what is one, the trick? Okay, you're the mob prosecutor. Okay, so the one thing is not a mob boss. He's cheap. That's one, point one. Uh-huh. Point two is the mob point, which is you've caused everyone to join you in the conspiracy. So they have every bit as motiva- as much of motivation to lie. It's like when uh, Tony sent out somebody, you, you want to become a, you want to become a made man, right? And, and so Tony sends on some, sends, Tony sends Christopher, sends Christopher okay. out to do the hit on the cop in well, Nutley. Remember that? That person, it's exactly the same thing. It's like once you do his bidding, you're kind of stuck because you did everything he did. And, 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 and Julie, which is amazing. But then the third thing is there's Trump's absolute stupidity because there is nobody other than Donald Trump who is more responsible for the two impeachments than Rudy Giuliani. Well, yes. So you would think he would have learned his lesson uh, about, about dealing with Rudy, but yeah, he can't help himself. I, I just, it boggles the mind. I understand yeah. that Rudy Giuliani is impl- quite literally implicated in all of this. Yep. And yet, because he's so central to the case, I mean, do you think it's an even uh, Jenna Ellis, another Trump lawyer, calls Trump a malignant narcissist this week and says she cannot vote for him. He's losing the people that were his foot soldiers in this alleged conspiracy. Look, that is the brilliance of the Fonnie Willis indictment where, you know, this is what happens when, you know, it focuses the mind to um, be facing charges. There's no more deniability where you're thinking, well, maybe I'm going to skate. Uh, the fact that you might be named as one of the unindicted co-conspirators by Jack Smith, you know, everyone can read into that, that that's just a matter of time before they become indicted co-conspirators so they could be facing federal and state uh, crimes. So there is a lot of pressure on all sorts of people to cooperate. But one thing that's clear is neither neither prosecutor needs these people. So in many ways, you know, their window for doing this is not over, but it's not the ideal time. They really should have done it before. You think that Rudy Giuliani may not be as uh, of interest to the prosecution at this point in terms of uh, a cooperating witness? I, I would say, you know, it reminds me a lot of in special counsel Mueller's investigation. Um, there were people that we didn't need to have as cooperators, but we wanted the information. Um, so Paul Manafort, after he would call blue trial and he offered to cooperate and we had a lot of suspicions that it wasn't going to be real. But the reason we went forward is we said, you have to plead to every single thing you did. Yeah. But we wanted the information um, because it was so important to the country to know what he knew if he was going to be truthful. And so I could see um, Jack Smith and Fonnie Willis thinking if he was going to be truthful, there could be information there that is important. But but he'd be useless as a witness because he's just so he said so many. I mean, you can't count the number of ridiculous and stupid and false things that Rudy Giuliani has said over the years. We're going to try, George, over the course of the next several months. We're going to, well, I'm on record saying we're going to try and do that.
Okay, he rolls good luck eyes. with that. He rolls his <laughs> good eyes. Luck. Oh my it's gosh. been a theatrical block, I'd say, between yeah. my voice problems and Perry Mason here. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so well, I didn't much. I not have a chart this time. <laughs> Andrew Weisman. Oh, we didn't even say this co-host of the indispensable MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. It is a pleasure, a delight, an honor to have you with me, sir. And George, we're not done with you yet. Please hang out for one more segment. (laughs) We have a lot to get to this evening, including the Detroit Auto Workers Rally that Donald Trump has conveniently scheduled to counter-program next week's second Republican debate. But first... There are a lot of things that people accidentally leave on baby changing tables in public restrooms. It could be pacifiers, spare diapers. I have left my cell phone on one. But one reporter today says he found something altogether different at a bathroom inside the U.S. Capitol. And Speaker Kevin McCarthy's fate may hang on it. We'll explain coming up next. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. As Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy works to manage the utter chaos of the House Republican Conference, independent journalist Matt Laszlo says he found something very interesting today on one of the baby-changing tables in a restroom in the U.S. Capitol. He found a document, and it reads, Resolved that the office of the Speaker of the House of Representatives is hereby declared to be vacant. That is correct. That is correct. It appears it's hard for it's hard for me to even describe this without laughing. It appears that someone left a draft motion to boot Kevin McCarthy from his speakership. It appears that they left that draft on a baby changing table. And it quite literally has Congressman Matt Gates's name written all over it. Now, NBC News has not verified whether or not Congressman Gates has drafted such a motion. But man, it sure seems on brand, doesn't it? Back with me once again is lawyer and columnist George Conway. Uh, George, this is too on. It's too it's too cute by half to leave a motion to vacate on a baby changing table. I'll let everybody just work their minds through that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's the a theater of the absurd, but I don't want to use talk about theaters this week. It, 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 you know. it, I, mean, it, I don't know whether it was done on purpose, but for this to come up at this particular moment when Kevin McCarthy is having one of the worst weeks in his entire political career and it may just get worse, yeah. doesn't it just doesn't seem like a coincidence. And 
I don't know. Yeah, because it doesn't make any sense. Why, why are you carrying that around? It's not like it has to be heavily edited. It's about six words long. So why why are you carrying it around? I kind of uh, move the move a comma here or there. I, I I can't imagine that. So yeah, I, I, I but but it's not a, it's not like it's a big secret though. He's yes. been threatening to do this basically from day one. Well, and so, right. And, it's and not the horse's the head in the bed, right. shall we say, to continue yeah. with the mob yeah. metaphors. It's Maybe she's rubbing the, it in. I don't know. I, it's, it's but do you just, think it's it, it, do you think it's it's it, we are inevitably heading towards Kevin McCarthy being ousted at this point? I have no idea. All I can tell you is that nobody there cares about governing. They just do not care. And it's all about competing for attention. And that's why they, you know, that's why they, they, they're going to have such trouble uh, maintaining a majority. I mean, they can't, they don't really care. These people from, you know, these people from these districts where, where they're going to win no matter what, um, uh, you know, like MTG and, and, and so on, they, they don't care about whether, whether there's a, they don't care about governing. So what, what, why do they need to be in the, why do they need to be in the majority? Why not throw out the speaker? Why not just, they just want chaos. And that's, that's, they're going to get it. If you were a Democrat in the House, what is the calculation here? I mean, Democrats can also raise a motion to vacate. None have. None have suggested that they would. Is Kevin McCarthy their best option for someone who seems vaguely tethered to the notion of institutional functionality? Well, I think I think that the my attitude, if I were a Democrat, would be the old political adage is when your opponents are basically hanging themselves or doing themselves harm, just get out of the way. And that's basically, I think that's what they've been doing. I mean, they just, all they have to do is point, look at this dysfunction. But that said, there is a government shutdown looming. Right. And while it is distinctly bad politics for Republicans, Democrats would like to see the, the government function. Well, yeah. Right? And, and I think the only way you can do that is they'd have to work out some kind of deal with moderate Republicans. And I, you know, the problem is it's Speaker McCarthy can't can't play any role in that because he'll lose his job. So it, it, he's 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 in a complete box. I don't know whether the Democrat, but the problem also from the Republican standpoint is that if you cooperate in any way, you know, even if you get something that's useful from your standpoint as a as a Republican, or but they don't have any policy positions anymore. But suppose they had, and they they got something for their troubles and gave something up to the Democrats. You know, there's going to be a significant portion of the Republican base is going to say you are collaborating with the enemy. Yeah. It's like okay. That's they just are not capable of governing. They have no desire to govern, and they basically, you know, that's their appeal to a large swath of the Republican electorate now is that they don't want governance. They Do just you, want destruction. I mean, you have been warning. Uh, you've been raising the alarm bells about what's happening inside the Republican Party for a long time now is what is unfolding right now between Donald Trump being the presumptive nominee for the party facing 91 fel- criminal, f- sorry, 91 felony counts, yep. the Republican Party in Congress being effectively non-functional, completely uninterested in governing. Is this the nightmare that you, is this worse than what you thought oh, might I, happen? I, I couldn't have conceived. I mean, I remember in, in 2018, I registered as an independent in March 2018. And my restated reasoning for doing that then was that I thought the Republican had, Party had become a personality cult. It was nothing in 2018 compared to 2023. I mean, you, I could not have conceived. I mean, I did come to the conclusion by 2019 that Donald Trump was a criminal and a recidivist criminal. But, you know, the notion that he would be charged with, you know, in, you know, he would take the, these documents, they would ferment, a, ferment an insurrection, that he would do all the things that we now know that he did. Um, even I couldn't conceive of that. Uh, I mean, I thought he was, you know, I thought he was, he, he, he committed obstruction. I mean, we had Andrew Weissman here. They were a whole 
300-page volume about yes. how all the obstruction he committed. Yes. And, and I, I, I thought the Ukraine scandal was, was extortion and, 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 and an attempt to solicit a bribe. And, and I, thought, I thought that was chargeable, too. And, and I, I, but I didn't think he, he I mean, I didn't think he would try to overthrow American democracy altogether all at once the way he did. I thought he would just undermine it bit by bit by bit. And, it, and, and effectively find uh, many versions right. of um, insurrectionists yeah. in, in Congress, in the halls yeah. of Congress. Uh, George Conway, Thank it's you. a scary thing when we have exceeded even your darkest imagination no, for what yeah. the Republican Party might become. Thank you for joining me to conjure this dystopia, right. or at least an uh, analysis of this dystopia. There's more to come. Get, well, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Thank you for your time, yeah. sir. We have a lot more tonight in including the political fallout from the UAW strike and what it means for both Joe Biden and Donald Trump. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre will join me right here in the studio when we come back. Stay with us. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. This big standoff between the auto workers and the big three auto manufacturers. My question for you, Mr. President, whose side are you on in this? Uh, I'm on the side of uh, making our country great. The auto workers are being sold down the river by their leadership, and their leadership should endorse Trump. Donald Trump is a criminal defendant, but he is also very much a political candidate, and he is currently pushing one of his favorite political tropes, Donald Trump, the populist. Last night, we learned that Mr. Trump is planning to skip the second Republican debate next week and will instead hold a rally in Detroit to court striking auto workers. This is not a new gambit. In 2016, Trump, who, as a reminder, has always been an ultra-wealthy coastal elite, Trump rebranded himself as a champion of blue-collar union workers, helping him win support in key swing states like Michigan and Ohio, those union workers did. Here, he was at a campaign rally in Michigan in 2016. I've been talking about Michigan for a long time. We can't let them take your car industry out or your industry out of your state any longer. Not going to happen. And so now Trump wants to run that play again. He wants to show the union workers that he is their man. Except President Trump spent four years in office distinguishing himself as the most anti-union president of the last three decades. He appointed Eugene Scalia, one of the nation's top anti-union lawyers, to be his secretary of labor. Under Trump's administration, the National Labor Relations Board implemented sweeping new rules that made it harder for workers to form unions. Rules, by the way, that Joe Biden reversed when he took office. 
Trump packed the courts with anti-labor judges, people like Thomas Farr, who spent his career bringing cases before the courts to weaken unions. President Trump made it harder for workers to earn overtime, and he gutted the federal agency in charge of workplace safety. Now, by contrast, President Biden has pushed a decidedly pro-labor agenda since taking office. He has voiced support for striking auto workers' demands. He has met with workers unionizing big businesses, including Amazon and Starbucks. And even as Republicans continue to balk President Biden's pro-union candidate for secretary of labor, the Biden administration has been able to dramatically expand union rights through his appointees at the National Labor Relations Board. But now, looking for an opening with a key demographic in key swing states, the Trump team is trying to use Biden's push for things like electric vehicles to drive a wedge between Biden and the unions that have supported him. Is it going to work? All we know is that this strike could end up deciding a lot. Joe Biden won Michigan by less than three percentage points. He won Pennsylvania by just over a single point. I'm going to ask White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre about all of that and more coming up next. The United Auto Workers strike is entering a sixth day, and if negotiations fail to make more meaningful progress by Friday, the strike will likely expand beyond the three plants where workers have already walked off the job. Donald Trump is heading to Michigan next week to court many of these same union votes while the White House is trying to balance President Biden's union support with a potential fallout from an extended strike. Joining me now is White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. It is a pleasure to see you on Thank set. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you Thank for you. having you. Have, sp- taking a little bit of time in what is an extraordinarily <laughs> busy week. And My we will pleasure. talk about why the president is in oh. New York. But I just first... <laughs> I want to ask you about this strike because I watch, I'm watching it unfold. First of all, we spent the last block outlining the ways in which this administration has been remarkably, decidedly pro-union. Yeah. And yet there's the reality that union workers, rank-and-file workers, you're seeing a lot of them pretty disillusioned with the Democratic Party. I want to read a quote. This is from Politico reporting. UAW member, Democrats were for the working people. That has changed. I'm telling you what. The Democratic Party was not what it was 20, 30 years ago. Side note, 20, 30 years ago, they were signing NAFTA, so we won't get into the actual <laughs> timeline there. But how, why is this, what, what to do about this perception and what is at the root of it? Look, we just got to keep talking about it. You did a, a fantastic job laying out what the president has done, really undoing a lot of the damage that the last administration did when they were not pro-union, when they were not about the workers. And so here's the thing, and the president talks about this every time we talk about the economy, every time we talk about these types of issues, about how much he has been for unions, mm-hmm. how he's a pro-union guy, how he believes that we have to continue to build a an economy that really uh, puts workers at the middle, right? The middle class, middle class, he always says the unions build the middle class, which is incredible true. And so he's been saying that for years. But here's the thing. If you look at the last two years, you see how collective bargaining has really played a role here. Mm-hmm. You saw that with the Westport with the Westport situation. You saw that with UAW and Teams. I'm sorry, the um, UPS and Teamsters. And so he's going to continue to say that and continue to be incredibly for- forceful about it, about how it's important to, that they have the collective bargaining, how it's important to have the right to strike. And the president has been talking about that for some time now. And look, you know, we're going to continue to do that. The president's going to continue to do the work. And if you think about just the policies that he's passed and 
the legislation that have gone through that's now law and how it puts workers at the center of this, when it makes sure that we're creating good paying jobs, union paying jobs, because it's incredibly important to continue to do that. And the president speaks from experience when he talks about that. I mean, and I get the things that have been done. And I, and I think that there is like a weird lacuna around like what is, what is reality, but do do you need to change the messaging? Should president Biden go to the picket lines? Should he walk with the striking workers? Is that so? So look, what he's going to do as it relates to UAW, uh, he's going to basically continue to say, Hey, we support the unions, right? We, we believe that when a companies make a, cor- a record cor- a work profits, uh, so sh- this contract should be a record contract, right? For UAW. He's going to say they have the right to have collective bargaining. They have the right to strike. And there he's going to let them give them the opportunity to continue to negotiate. It is up to them to negotiate. We will engage. We will assist in any way that we can, but we have to give them the space to have those conversations. And that's where the president is. And that's basically what he said not too long ago. Are you guys at all worried about the way in which Trump and Republicans are trying to find a a wedge to drive uh, between the president and workers over the question of electric vehicles and his climate change agenda? And 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 I'm glad you asked that question. The last administration, you know, President Trump, and I'm going to be careful not to talk about this election, 2024. I'm not going to talk about that because of the Hatch Act. Hatch what Act. I can say. Oh, what an I administration official that cares about the Hatch Act. <laughs> know, right? Refreshing. Shocker. But what I can say is that when you look at the EV, uh, kind of the EV future, yeah. uh, the last administration ceded that to our competitors. He ceded that to China. And the president did everything that he can to move forward with legislation, with uh, pieces, uh, with pe- with his policy to make sure that we focused on an EV future that makes us competitive. And not only that, that builds in America, right? Made in America. That's one thing that we have continued to say that we have to bring back those manufacturing jobs. And when you think about the EV future, that is what we're going to do. We're going to be able to make that in America. And that's what matters till we can be competitive competitive as a country. Uh, when you talk about EVs, that's obviously a huge um, part of the president's climate agenda. The, yeah, this administration absolutely. cares about climate change. It, it acknowledges that it's real. Yeah. And yet it can't be one country pushing for it can't be a that's handful exactly of countries. Right. It, ne- it literally needs to be the entire globe. Um, is the U.N. <laughs> is the U.N. the right format anymore for major global initiatives? I mean, so look, as Go you ahead. know, UNGA has was this week. or UNGA, to those who do not know, the, the UN, UN General, General Assembly. Assembly. Right. This is what happens when you have two people, who, <laughs> right, right, one right. from D.C. and one who lives there. It's just UNGA it's to just us. UNGA to us. But it really matters. It's still the world stage. You saw the president this morning. He laid out how he sees the future of this country moving forward. And it is working with our partners, working with our allies. And one of the things he he talked about, how it's important to make sure that we secure, we, we are more secure, more prosperous prosperous, not just for us as Americans, but for the world. That's how we're going to move forward. He talked about uh, how climate change, how climate is an existential threat. Yeah. You see the extreme with weather. When you think about the flooding and the heat, that's just not here. That's globally. And so that's why something like the Infl- Inflation Reduction Act, which has, which is the biggest investment in climate change to deal with the cl- climate crisis, 
is so important. And so the president's going to continue to move forward in that way. He talked about that. He talked about Russia's aggression, how Russia thinks that we're going to be weary and we're going to like leave Ukraine and not and just forget about it. That's not something we're going to do. And I was in the hall when the president gave that those remarks. And when he said that, continuing to make sure we we uh, give Ukraine the support that they need so they can beat back Russia, so they can fight for their freedom, fight for their democracy. You heard that room just clap and really react to the president's comments. And so that is the world stage that the president stands on. And let's not forget, he has changed the, the perception of America in the last two years and what we saw from the last administration to make sure that we continue to be leaders. And that's what's been important uh, this week to continue to have those conversations. Now he just needs to get Republicans in the same room clapping for support for Ukraine. But that's a... But, you know, look, we've seen bipartisan support yeah. for uh, for the financial support the financial security support, right? The financial support that we've we've been able to give Ukraine. We've seen that. We've been incredibly appreciative. We're going to continue to have those conversations. It's important to do so. And it's not just us. It's our allies and partners. And because we have been able to do that, Ukraine on the ground, we've seen them fight really bravely. They've been able to have successes in the battlefield. And we have to be there for them as long as it takes. Mitch McConnell, all nation turns its lonely (laughs) eyes to you. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, truly one of the busiest people in this nation. I'm so appreciative of you taking a couple minutes to visit us in the 30 Rock. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. We have one more story for you this evening. Did Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh send a not-so-secret message to right-wing activists? What is really going on behind the scenes in the fight over one of the most important civil rights laws of our time? That is next. So we have some new bombshell reporting from an investigative journalistic outlet in Alabama that helps to explain something that was previously kind of inexplicable. Earlier this year, Alabama Republicans decided to defy a direct order from the Supreme Court to change their racially gerrymandered congressional maps, ones that were in direct violation of the Voting Rights Act. According to the Alabama Political Reporter, that's the outlet, as Republican lawmakers worked to redraw their congressional map, They got intelligence that Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who had originally voted against the use of those gerrymandered maps, they got intelligence that Justice Kavanaugh was open to rehearing the Republicans' case under a different legal theory. Lo and behold, just last week, Alabama Republicans petitioned the the court for that rehearing. And now the Alabama political report is Adding to its reporting with revelations that the decision to defy the court in the first place was driven by nationally connected political operatives at the center of the well-documented right-wing effort to overturn the remaining key protections established by the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Excuse me for losing my voice. The news outlet goes on to outline connections between Alabama Republicans, Justice Kavanaugh, and a web of dark money groups connected by conservative activist Leonard Leo. Joining me now is the invaluable Dahlia Lithwick, who I hope is going to talk more than I am, senior editor at Slate and host of the Amicus podcast, as well as the author of the book, Lady Justice, which is out in paperback today. I'm just going to wave it around and stop talking. (laughs) Dahlia, first, talk to me a little bit about what seems to be happening 
with conservative activists taking like winking, I don't know, is it wink, wink, nudge, nudge from the Supreme Court justice? He's suggesting, hey, guys, come back here with the same case under a different in, in a different fashion. Other way. Right. For lack I of mean, a better term. Look, this is, I mean, under any other guise, this is nullification, right? This is what happened after Brown v. Board when Southern states said, no, we just, we're just not going to comply. Um, you would think any of the nine justices on the Supreme Court would be horrified when a state simply says, yeah, no, you wrote in Allen versus Milligan this case, the ink is not dry, said create another, uh, majority, uh, black district. New map. New maps. This is what it looks like. Go back and no says Alabama. They said no. And the reason is whether it's I mean, either of the theories are horrifying. Right, Alex? One yes. is they have inside intel because everybody in the Alabama legislature is in bed with Leonard Leo and he's in bed with Brett Kavanaugh and the big donors and the slush money. That's awful. The other possibility is they don't care. And right. that's almost worse, right? right? That they're just going to take this case back to the Supreme Court under a theory that Brett Kavanaugh threw into a concurring opinion and they're like, we think we can flip him this time. Well, and it seems like, uh, you know, for those of us who are expecting a, a, a bad for civil rights ruling on affirmative action and were g given exactly that bad ruling, the Alabama ruling was kind of like, oh, surprise, look, the court isn't as, uh, you know, isn't denying our country's racist history in the way that we thought it would. It now seems like that affirmative action ruling may be of use to people who want to get rid effectively of the ruling that the Supreme Court made on Alabama. Can you explain that in, in, like more articulately than I have? No, I mean, you've exactly nailed it. Justice Kavanaugh's theory in both cases is that there's like it's that, that, that you know, remediation of centuries of civil rights abuses is like milk and it has a sell by date. And, you know, in in uh, the affirmative action cases, he won on that theory, right? That's what the court said. It's like, bing, your Pop-Tart is done and we can't use affirmative action anymore. It almost makes more sense for him to try to square the circle and say the same thing, right? That's the theory. Neither briefed nor argued in the Alabama gerrymandering case. That's the theory. He pops into a concurrence is like, oh, I think Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act also has a bing sell by date. And so come back to me. And let's see when it happens. Like, I'll just keep sniffing the milk. Keep, come back to me like two minutes later. I mean, Lynn just issued this opinion. Is it? Fee I mean, well, they're taking uh, they're, they're they're petitioning to get this case back on the docket. Is right. it going to happen? Been, no, it's been hustled back to the court on an emergency basis. We may find out about it sooner rather than not. But the thing, you know, Mark Joseph Stern and I wrote a piece today at Slate saying Justice Clarence Thomas used to do this trick, right? He'd drop a footnote or he'd write in a dissent like, oh, you know, it's 1997. I sure hope someone, you know, brings a, a, a case making the claim that the Second Amendment is an individual right. And then like years later, that case is brought and it comes before the court and the court changes the law. Now that time frame is so pancaked that you can have Justice Kavanaugh write, huh, I'm going to just kind of wink at you and say, bring it back under this theory. And in three months, I might change my mind. So what's astounding isn't just the defiance yes. and the certainty shown by the Alabama legislature. It's that we are now in a climate where this conservative 
supermajority, six justices on the court, can literally signal to the country, to judges around the country and legislatures uh, around the country, we're in the bag for you. Just bring us a better case. Unbelievable. The impunity, the transparency of the, I, I'm going to say corruption, because the other thing that the Alabama reporter does, the Alabama political reporter, the outlet that we cited in the beginning to this block, is they establish a web of connections between the justices. And we've long known that Leonard Leo is kind of the Svengali of this Roberts court. But conservative donors, people who are on the payroll, Ginny Thomas, I mean, the, it, it is too elaborate for me to go into in the remaining minutes of television that we have. But the the sort of the relationship between dark conservative dark money and the justices on the Supreme Court is not hard to trace. And in this particular case, it seems like that is very much at the root of how these justices send out their smoke signals and how the lawmakers and the lawyers on the other end understand them and read the smoke signals to begin with. That, that's why I'm so glad you said that, because that's why this particular incident is so telling. We tend to completely bifurcate the Supreme Court coverage, right? We cover the cases. We cover the docket. We're yes. like, oh, I wonder, you know, whether the Chevron doctrine is going to be overruled this turn. And then we cover the corruption and the scandals and the pay to play. And this illuminates that they're the same story, Alex. It's the same story that the pay to play guys who are all involved with Leonard Leo, who's involved in efforts to suppress the vote, they're now paying to play the game of managing the docket itself, of doctrine itself. It's one story, and we have to start treating it like it's one story. It is devastating and deeply distressing. There's truly no better person to talk to, especially on a night when I'm losing my voice, but definitely when we're talking about matters of grave national import. The great Dahlia Willithwick, whose book, Lady Justice, is once again, did I mention it, out in paperback today. So great to see you. Thank you, Dahlia. That is our show for tonight.